This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. 
One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Ashley Cummins. Now, Ashley is a retired veteran police officer, a mixed martial arts fighter, and one of the people behind OTX Tactics. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey through the martial arts, her road into policing, defensive tactics, fitness, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 650 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ashley Cummins. Enjoy. Well, Ashley, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this fine Californian morning? <laughs> I'm in uh, San Diego and weather here is perfect. It's beautiful. So that's how it is pretty much every day in San Diego. Brilliant. Yeah, I used to work for Anaheim for a few years, so I can I can relate. Yeah. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born and raised in 
St. Louis, Missouri for 31 years. And, um, yeah, I have a younger sister and, you know, I lived with my parents, my, you know, whole childhood. And, you know, I had a great upbringing. My parents are very supportive of all my goals and dreams in life. And they made me the person I am today. And what, what did they do as far as profession? So they've always had um, a bunch of like odd jobs here and there. They never like had like a, a set career. They had their entire life. Um, that's what's kind of unique about me is just because I don't come from a family of um, first responders or military. So I'm kind of like an odd duck. Yeah, I was the same. So my great uncle supposedly was um, high up in the volunteer fire service in World War II, but that's it. So again, they were printers and veterinary surgeons and all kinds of things. So I was the first responder of mine as well. Um, so what about sports? I know you got into martial arts pretty early. So talk to me about what your first one was and then your journey through till, let's say, high school age. Um. Growing up, I played uh, soccer and did Taekwondo. Um, I did both sports from five until um, I think Taekwondo, I stopped doing around 18 and soccer. Um, I played soccer up until college. I got a college uh, scholarship and uh, my sophomore year, I, uh, I gave it up to pursue uh, my new passion in life that kind of led me to where I'm at now. Taekwondo, did you do the ITF or WTF? Oh man, I don't even I don't even know. Did, did just, you did you wear the hogu and only be able to punch to the body or could you lightly punch to the body and face? I could lightly punch to the body and face. Um I was never a fan like I did Taekwondo as a child and teenager and I loved it, but I always knew it was never enough. Like I wanted I remember in high school I asked my parents, can I start kickboxing and they said no we don't want you to get hurt then I asked if I could join my high school wrestling team and they're like no like we don't feel comfortable with you rolling around with boys like that so I always knew I wanted to fight and take things to the next level and I knew taekwondo like wasn't going to fulfill that so at the high school level you got the scholarship what were you thinking of um, career-wise at that point I knew I wanted to be a cop um, I knew since like middle school that I wanted to do something in law enforcement. So I'm going to ask you a question. This happened to me. I'm just curious if it did to you. I had a lot of trophies. I won a lot of titles in Taekwondo and, you know, the tippy tappy Taekwondo looks amazing. Yeah. I, I do stunts to this day. It's great for that. And then I went and did boxing and kickboxing and got my ass handed to me over and over and over again. Was there an element of, of not so much even humility, but a realization of what worked and what didn't in the sport that you've done through your formative years? Yeah, but I think I always knew Taekwondo wasn't practical to win like a street fight. And I think I realized that before even leaving Taekwondo and entering mixed martial arts, just because I watched, it was like the early days of the UFC. So I would always watch the UFC. And I remember thinking like the crap I'm learning in Taekwondo, like I would get my ass kicked if I try that against like, you know, someone that's trained in MMA. So, I mean, that, that's a big reason why I, I stopped training uh, Taekwondo in college just because I wanted to fight. I knew this wasn't, this wasn't real fighting in my eyes. So what was that journey then? Did you go into a full MMA school or did you find yourself in Muay Thai or Jiu-Jitsu first? Yeah, so I was in college in uh, Springfield, Missouri, so a couple hours away from home. And, 
you know, because I was no longer living with my parents, I was like, well, I can do what I want now because they never wanted me to fight. So I, I just decided one day, like, I really want to pursue MMA. I want to try to see if I'm, you know, skilled enough or a good enough athlete to fight eventually. So I gave up my scholarship so I could, you know, I was in school all day. And then once class let out, I would go to the gym all night and I found a local MMA gym pretty close to the college I was going to at the time. And it was a full MMA gym. It had everything. It wasn't just like a jiu-jitsu gym. And I just, day, I remember day one, just falling in love and just being like, oh my God, like, this is what I've been missing. Like, this is what I've wanted to do for years. And I just, you know, I finally am doing it. Because I think it can send you one of two ways. Either you can go in having meddled in your previous style and get humbled and be like, okay, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go back to my previous style or which will happen to me, you know, after numerous times of being swept or punched in the face, um, I go, okay, this is awesome. But I realize I'm <laughs> back to a, a white belt with no medals all over again. So was that what it was? It, it, it exposed what was missing, but also brought the tools to start learning how to deal with that too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was, I come from you know, 18 plus years of Taekwondo and soccer and, you know, I was high level in both sports. And then I, I started MMA and I'm a nobody. I'm nothing. I don't know how to do anything. Um, but that's what I love. Like I love learning new things and that's kind of like my personality. So I embraced it. You know, I, the, and I remember I was, it was a very like old school gym, like grungy. And like, I love that feeling. I was the only female in the gym. The guys were really cool and they beat my ass and I fucking loved it. I was like, hell yeah. Like make me better, make me a better person, make me a better fighter. And they loved my attitude and you know, it all, my passion only just grew from there. So what about the, the good side of Taekwondo? What I found when, again, we're talking about sparring, not you know, fighting in the cage, full contact. But um, there's times where I'm able to throw something from my Taekwondo years and it catches them because they're not expecting some of the more flashy things. Did you find that you were able to integrate your Taekwondo as you became a better striker in the cage? Honestly, I completely just got rid of all my Taekwondo skill and replaced it with Muay Thai. Um, I, I see how like a couple things in Taekwondo can be implemented at the right with the right timing. Um, but I personally just kind of let it all go and just focused my striking to be more of a Muay Thai style instead of Taekwondo. So what about the the level of contact? When I was in California, I trained with Shootbox. They had a gym in LA for a little bit. And I've talked about this before. It was literally fight club. Like every class was full, full contact. You'd be fighting, you know, someone twice the size as you and they would not be holding back. And then kind of fast forward, I trained with some other gyms, one um, uh, Colin Oyama's gym, which was a lot more controlled. And a lot of the sparring was lighter, you know, and you go hard once in a while. But um, and there was you were able to kind of work on technique a lot more then. What have you seen? You know, what was it like when you first started in the, the full, full contact side? And have you watched a genesis of of the level of sparring contact level when we're learning more about TBIs now? Yeah, I think the the very first gym I trained at was, you know, it was a hundred percent like when we spar, we're trying to hurt each other, even though we're teammates. And then once I moved back to St. Louis and joined, um, you know, trained at different gyms in the St. Louis, Missouri area, 
I saw that a lot of gyms were more like uh, the technical sparring, like we're going like, you know, maybe 60, 70% instead of a hundred, maybe even lighter some days. Um, and then eventually when I moved to San Diego and started training in San Diego, the gym I'm at here is actually like old school. So when we spar, like we're going a hundred percent. So I've kind of seen every gym kind of has different styles. Have you have you noticed any issues with that though? Because it seems like a lot of the people in the striking world now, I mean, not all, but a lot of them are realizing that if they lighten up on the sparring in the gym, there's less injuries and, and less cumulative TBIs so that when, you know, you're getting most of your damage done in the actual cage itself. Yeah, I mean, obviously I've seen, you know, even my, my gym in San Diego, um, I've seen a lot of injuries in uh, sparring days. Um, so obviously there's pros and cons like, yeah, you're risking getting injured, but, um, you know, the pros is, you know, if, when you put yourself in deep waters and you have to dig deep and fight through like being hurt or, you know, feeling some pain, I mean that, you know, that could bring a different element to the cage as well. So, I mean, kind of every style has its pros and cons and you just, at the end of the day, you have to find a gym that fits you and your personality. Mm Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Well, what about law enforcement? Walk me through, you decided to leave college and give up your scholarship. You go into MMA. What was that journey into law enforcement like for you? I I didn't leave college. I just, I just, um, I just quit soccer and I got rid of my soccer scholarship, but I finished college. I got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Um, and as soon as I graduated a month later, I joined uh, the police academy in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, so I think I was like probably 22, just turned 22. Um, I got hired, I think like maybe six weeks into the academy and yeah, I mean, being a cop is something I've wanted to do since probably middle school. So I was finally fulfilling my passion, my career passion, but I had already at that point, at, at that point, when I joined the police academy, I already had been training MMA for probably three or four years. And I had already had several amateur fights. I was an amateur champion in several organizations. So um, right away, I went into the academy kind of a couple steps ahead of the other recruits as far as like defensive tactics and kind of being like mentally tough and being able to push through like, you know, pain that you you, uh, get inflicted on you in the academy. So what did DTAC look like then? I mean, obviously, there's been an evolution. I know you've been in law enforcement for quite a while. When you first entered, regardless of the training that you brought with you, what kind of training were the recruits getting? I mean, this was like over 12 years ago, but it was trash. You know, it was it was trash. And honestly, I think it's still trash. Um, I think things have gotten better in our profession as far as defensive tactics training in the academy and outside of the academy, but there's still a long way to go to, to make it be where it should be. And what about fitness standards? Uh, you know, something that we talk about a lot, well, we say we, I talk about a lot with the guests on the show. In police and fire, it blows my mind that we don't have annual standards. Now, don't get me wrong, the environment a lot of people work in makes it very challenging to maintain their health, I mean, the shifts. But when there are fitness standards in lifeguarding and so many other professions, the fact that we don't have them, I think, factor into some of the the lower physical readiness that we see in some of these god-awful videos. Yeah, I actually think, I mean, fitness standards were always bad. 
in law enforcement and still are. But I actually think when I went through the academy 12 plus years ago, they were better than their. I think it's decreased over the years. Um, I remember like at my when I went through the academy, like if you weren't at a, fir- a, a certain fitness level, like you got kicked out, like you're fired, you're done, get out now. Like and I can say this because I teach at two different police academies um, in California. So I'm that's like part of my my part time job is teaching at an academy and there, there's no fitness standards anymore. Like if you can't complete a workout, it's like whatever. Like there's no punishment. Um, you see a lot of recruits coming into the academy, very, very unhealthy, un, unfit. And, but the standards have dropped over the years, unfortunately. Now, why do you think that is through your lens? Um, I think it's a lot of different reasons. I think it's, uh, I think one of the main reasons there's less and less people that want to be cops now. So that they're getting ap- less applications. So now the standards have kind of had to lower so we can have bodies in the streets, you know, and w- with a uniform on. So we're, we're not getting the best applicants and we're not getting the best applicants because of this anti-police movement that's been going on for years. So less people want to do the job. So I want to kind of get into the whole defund and all that stuff. But one thing that really struck me when I looked at your MMA record is I think you got fight of the night for this too. But the submission was a um, neon neck choke, which when we're thinking about law enforcement is very pertinent to the genesis of a lot of the anti-law enforcement movement that we're seeing at the moment. So firstly, I'm intrigued about that choke as a submission. Let's talk about that. And then I'd love to hear about your philosophy of the application of jujitsu and other similar arts in law enforcement yeah that fight i had a fight i have one fight for bellator um it was a long time ago it was before the george floyd um incident and i won i think it was second round with a submission that's called neo neck choke and it, it is exactly what it sounds like you put your knee on uh your opponent's neck while you're in side control and they go night, night and they fall asleep pretty quick. Um, you know, I think it, when you train jujitsu and you are actively training all the time and not what police departments provide, which is maybe like 30 minutes every year, um, you know how to properly control someone with minimal force and minimal effort to keep them safe and yourself safe. So, you know, I, I think it's sad that we took away a lot of chokes because if officers were getting the training they need, they would know how to implement the chokes in a safe manner um, to keep everyone involved in a use of force situation safe. So, I mean, I understand why it was taken away, but a lot of the blame is on our country as a whole with all the police departments because I mean, that's one of my biggest pet peeves in law enforcement is we we give officers shitty training to no training. So I don't know what's worse, getting no training or just getting awful training. But, you know, we need to be training combatives like weekly. That's all we do as police officers is go hands on. I mean, we shoot our firearm um, for training, usually most departments three times a year. So we shoot our, so we get more training with a firearm than we do with hands-on training, but we go hands-on every week and most officers go their entire career and never discharge their firearm. There's something wrong with that. Why are we not giving our officers more combatives training? 
Well, even if you look at the the weapons training, and again, this is a firefighter speaking, not someone within law enforcement, but from all the guests that I've had on, it seems to be a, a resounding common denominator that a lot of the qualification with a weapon is in a range on a target, not after exertion, not after going on hands-on or, you know, after doing a series of calisthenics and then having to shoot while you move or do a tactical reload, but simply aiming at a site, firing X amount of times, and then calling it good for six months or a year. Yeah, exactly. The firearms, I was actually just about to say that the the fire, we get more firearms training than combatives training, but the firearms training is complete trash as well. I mean, we're standing still at a target that's standing still. Our heart rate's at the normal heart rate. We qualify and they're like, all right, good job, guys. We'll see you again in like, you know, four months and you qualify again. And it's like, that's it. Like um, from someone that's been in an officer involved shooting, that's not how it goes. I mean, you're, you know, when you're chasing with someone and you're running, your heart rate's up and you're taking fire and your adrenaline's up and then you have to return fire. It's nothing like being at standing still at the firing range, um, you know, what we're giving officers. And if we made training more realistic, like, for example, I, you know, I put a lot of money into, um, going the classes around the U S so I can be a better officer. Um, I got to a point where I don't even ask my police departments anymore for like training requests. I just pay for it out of my own pocket. Cause I already know the answer is no. Um, but I go to these classes where, you know, we'll be at an outdoor range and we fight, we fight. Um, we do hands-on stuff where we're fighting over like a loose gun and it'll be SIM guns. We shoot each other. And then after the fight, I have to run to a barrel, pick up a live gun and start shooting a target and shoot as I run. That's realistic. That's realistic training that we do not give our officers. And it's sad that we're so undertrained. but, and if anything goes wrong, we're the ones that are thrown under the bus. We're the ones that are getting fired, indicted, but we're not getting the training we need to be better. So Tim Kennedy and Sheepdog Response came to Ocala here um, about, three four years ago now and it was right after the parkland shooting so a bunch of sponsors had actually donated spots for law enforcement and first responders here so there's a lot of firefighters that came from around florida and took the civilian side and then there was the law enforcement side well tim kennedy came back on the show and he was talking about i don't think they even filled up all the law enforcement spots and then they had a bunch of no shows day two as well so this was, I mean, you know, took some of the best instructors in the country coming to our little town here in Florida, free spots, and they couldn't fill them. And ironically, this, the civilian one was filled both days. So what do you think the resistance is from the individuals themselves? Is there is there a, an ego element or even a fear element of um, realizing that their skills maybe aren't where they need to be? Oh, yeah. I mean, and I... I talk about that all the time, how, you know, I blame the police departments, but I also blame officers because you know what? No one's stopping you from getting off your ass and joining an MMA gym. No one, no one's stopping you from getting up and going to the shooting range and maybe paying for a private instruction or paying for um, classes that you can take. Um, You know, it sucks. I think a lot of factors roll into it. I think ego is a huge factor, Um, time and money. Um, you know, I understand officers have families, they have kids, um, you know, or maybe they're like, oh, I have a partner, I'm good or nothing. I think people or officers get complacent, you know, nothing bad's ever happened to me. I think officers get tool, uh, 
too um, reliant on the tools on their belt, um, which I see in a lot of use of force situations and it's just not good. So I, I think it's a lot of factors, but I mean, if you think about it, it's a, it's a small percentage of officers that have the motivation and drive in the, in, you know, they don't have egos to that. Sorry, they drop their egos and they join an MMA gym or you see them getting extra practice at the shooting range. And I think it's it's pretty rare to see officers that do that. I think it's getting better and you're seeing more and more officers like join jujitsu gyms and stuff like that. But it's a small percentage. Um, and even with with officers that train jujitsu, I think that's amazing. I mean, obviously, it's better than a major the majority of population of law enforcement. But in my eyes, that's not even enough. I mean, jujitsu is great, but jujitsu is not the answer to everything. And you know, a lot of people don't understand. Like, you could be a high level jujitsu athlete, but when you put on your duty belt and you have someone on top of you punching you, trying to grab your gun, your jujitsu is whatever belt rank you are, if you're a purple belt, you're going back down to white belt because you don't train that because that's a completely different aspect of jujitsu that you're not training. Well, that's what I see even my gym where I train, they're very, very sport focused and they are very honest about being very, very sport focused. My my uh, coach says, look, this is not the gym for self-defense. So, you know, when I'm training, I'm 48 years old. I'm not looking to compete. I love that gym. I love the way they teach. It seems to really kind of fit my learning style. But there's an understanding of, all right, every time I'm in a different position, I'm thinking, could I strike from here or could I be, you know, punch from here? And then we do sheepdog response. And now all of a sudden they throw guns and knives into the mix. And you're like, holy shit, there's this another layer that I didn't even think about, including if I get stabbed or shot, it's not the movies. I'm not suddenly dead. I may still be able to fight my way out of it, which I think the average person doesn't think about. So for people listening, what kind of schools should they be trying to look for? When to say they're in a, in an urban setting. So they've got plenty of, of schools for law enforcement specifically. What kind of instruction should be in that criteria that would be better for a law enforcement officer? Um, I see a lot of cops training jujitsu like which like i said earlier that's great you're already ahead of the game of majority of the law enforcement population um i personally think it's better if you want to join a gym to join a mma gym because you're going to be getting muay thai you're going to get boxing wrestling judo jujitsu um and you're going to get that kind of self-defense jujitsu aspect like if someone's on top of you punching you in your face that completely changes your jujitsu game your jujitsu game is going to it's just, it's like comparing apples to oranges. It's just two different things. Um, you know, some gyms out there do have like self-defense programs. A lot of gyms are incorporating programs for cops. I've been seeing that pop up around the U S. Um, and I, you know, I always encourage officers get extra firearms training. I mean, um, I do, I pay for privates, uh, with this guy named Thomas. Um, he's freaking amazing. And, you know, it's worth it to me to have someone one-on-one -on -one watching me shoot, putting me through drills and telling me what I need to do to be better, to be faster, to be more accurate. Um, you have to have that mentality of like, my department's not going to give me the training I need. I'm going to seek it myself because you know what? I have family that loves me and I'm going to do what it takes to get home to them. Well, you mentioned the officer-involved shooting. How deep into your career was that? And if, if you wanted to, um, tell the story of how that happened and how it ended. 
Um, it was pretty recent, so I don't think I can give details. It was um, last year, but that was the first. It was not the first time I'd been shot at, but it was the first time that I was able to return fire, and it was definitely a eye opener. And then even from someone. You know, I train MMA, I get private lessons with a mm -hmm. firearms instructor. And even then I was like, you know, it's an oh shit moment. And was I perfect? No, there was lots of things I could have done better. And I learned from it, but it just goes to show you that like, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You could be on just a normal call and just all of a sudden shit goes from one to 10. Um, I think most officers feel like, oh, like they see all these shootings and it's like, what are the odds that that's going to happen to me? I thought that. And then next thing I know, I'm one of those officers, um, an officer involved shooting. I, you know, no one wants to go through that. And, you know, I always hoped I would be able to go through my career and never have to experience that. But I did. I'm glad that I came out safe and my partner came out safe and, um, it was a very good learning lesson for me on so many aspects. So I, I learned a lot and I learned on things I can do better if it ever happens again. So what were some of the changes that you made after that incident? Man, you know, I was already training. I was already doing the one-on-one -on -one privates with a firearms instructor. I'm already, you know, active in MMA. So like having that like adrenaline feeling, you know, it was already something I was kind of used to, but I don't know. I think honestly, the one thing I, I changed was probably just more being open with like my loved ones on what I was feeling instead of being closed off. Was that something that you struggled with before? Because I mean, obviously our profession, I think, especially like from my generation, a little bit older, a little bit younger, we were kind of raised into our profession as, you know, suck it up, rub some dirt in it, you know, don't be a pussy. We basically don't show feelings. Um, and you have, you know, an incident like you went through. Of course, there's a thousand different emotions that are going through you, your own mortality, the possibility of taking someone else's life. And then you have to process that. So kind of what was the genesis of your ability to be able to talk to people? Yeah, I think I, you know, I try to keep a lot of stuff from like my loved ones because I don't want them to worry. But I think after that situation, I kind of was like, you know, I think I should start just being more open with them so they can understand me more and my personality. So I don't know. I just for some reason, that situation, I think it puts in the perspective like at any moment you could be gone. So it was a really eye opener for me to like really cherish your your moments with your family and you know, always tell them you love them and um, just be open with them on if you're having a bad day, like talk about it. Don't just keep things bottled up because, you you know, they love you and they want to be there for you. And you just never know. You never know what's going to happen. I want to go back while we're on the kind of mental health subject. Um, early in your career, you had a fight and it affected your vision. So I'd love to hear, kind of walk me through that. And then I want to kind of unpack some things as you were hurt. Yeah, I had a fight. Uh, it's one of my fights for Invicta. It was actually against Joanne Calderwood. Um, if anyone that follows UFC, she's a big name in the UFC now. This was at 115 pounds. She now fights at 125 and I fight at 105. 
Um, but like the very first punch she threw in the first round, I immediately lost my vision. I couldn't, everything was so blurry. It was like the vision, it was kind of like coming and going. It was really weird. Um, I eventually got TKO'd. Um, I think like maybe two minutes later. And then I remember going to the locker room and I was like, man, I still can't see like what's going on. I went to the emergency room that night and they said, yeah, you have three broken orbital bones and um, nerve damage. And they're like, give it a couple of weeks. Let's see if your vision comes back on its own. I think I waited a week or two. The vision, my vision never came back. So um, I had to get surgery. I had to get a, a metal plate under my eye. Um, even after surgery, my vision didn't come back right away. It was kind of like a slow progression for, so for several weeks, I kind of just lied in bed, you know, as I couldn't, my vision was messed up. So it's not like I could go drive or anything, <laughs> but I lied in bed, just like crap. Like, am I going to, is my vision ever going to come back? Am I going to lose my job as a police officer? I mean, it was pretty scary. It was scary times to think like this could be my life forever. Cause I mean, the doctor said it's not a guarantee your vision will come back, but luckily it did. I think after about a month. Oh, was that both eyes you couldn't see through? Yeah, I couldn't see out of both eyes. The way the doctor explained it, even though only one eye had the damage because they're both connected to the brain, it kind of affects both eyes and the vision. So I just literally had a conversation this morning with um, a circadian rhythm and sleep expert in um, Oxford, England. Um, and he was a part of a thing called the uh, Blind Veterans UK and US. And he was talking about you know the mental health impact of blindness, especially if they've actually damaged the eye. So because you have the, the vision side, then you have the side that can see actual light that sets your body clock. Um, and all, he started unpacking all the different kind of mental health issues with that. Parallel to that, the number of people, myself included, that I've had on the show who've been hurt on duty and gone from being part of that team, having that purpose, being kind of pseudo superhuman to lying in bed with that injury, the mental health toll, you know, I saw myself in my back injury was far worse than the actual physical pain. What was that like for you mentally? I mean, I was just, I just remember being scared every day that my life is going to change forever. And I was going to lose my dream job of being a cop. Um, I think I was still early on in my career. Like I'd only had like two or three years on and that happened. Um, I remember I had a supervisor that was warning me, like, you better stop this MMA stuff. You're going to get hurt, and not be able to be a cop anymore. And I was like, oh shit, he's right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was a scary time and I know I'm crazy, but I healed up and I told myself I'm never going to fight again. And then I fought again. I think I have like another 15 fights after that one. So I didn't stop. So another thing I read on article, um, I think it was a little while ago now, but what was really sad, heartbreaking was you had a social media following. You're an MMA fighter. You're also a proud police officer. Um, talk to me about some of the social media trolling after you'd lost your vision. Oh, yeah. I mean, I... Throughout my professional fight career, um, I always, it was very known I was the pro fighter that was also a police officer. I mean, I would wear like thin blue line rash guards in the cage. I would have the thin blue line flag. Um, so when I lost, a lot of people celebrated and they would, I would get pretty awful messages like, you know, it's, we, 
saying that they wish I would have died in the cage and they hope my, they wish death on my family and my parents, like just pretty awful stuff. But you know, that's the world we live in. And, you know, I think I got to a point where I just became numb to it because I still get messages like that every once in a while. And it's like, people just, you know, unfortunately being a cop, it's a controversial profession. A lot of people out there don't respect it. And um, a lot of people out there actually hate the profession. So, you know, I didn't let that ever deter me from representing, you know, my brothers and sisters in blue every time I fought. So with your own eyes, with the communities that you serve, despite some of these, and they are outliers, these voices that we hear are, you know, not the majority. I think the majority of people acknowledge that you know, there's good cops and bad cops, there's good firefighters and bad firefighters. But overall, we need you guys, you know, and, and normally people are more than happy to call 911 when they're having a, a bad day. Um, with all the communities that you, you know, served in and then all the people that you met, what are some of the contributing factors that you see that has created this anti-law enforcement mentality? Because I'm sure a lot of the people that you interacted with weren't hating on you day in, day out. What created the anti-police environment? Yeah, that, that you saw yourself. Like, you know, what was the genesis? I mean, for example, I talk a lot about drug prohibition and how much death and destruction that has caused um, by an empowering the underworld and gangs and sending addicts to prison. Um, so, you know, obviously the, the, the breakdown of then parental structures and the multi-generational trauma, um, you know, but what were you seeing with your own eyes? Because I know where you worked is definitely one of the hotbeds for some of the anti-police sentiment and the defund movement. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, for me personally, you know, when I was a cop in St. Louis, I was there during the Ferguson riots. So, um, you know, I don't know if you've heard the term, the Ferguson effect, but it's very true. Um, I think that that was the initial incident that started this anti-police movement that um, we've been seeing since um, 2014. So um, things got a lot worse after the George Floyd incident, but it was the Michael Brown versus Darren Wilson shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, that kicked off this anti-police movement. And I was there for it. I lived it. I lived in those riots every day. And um, it was sad to see the community, I don't know, in such turmoil um, I think things have gotten better in St. Louis since then, especially, you know, talking to my friends that are still back home. But yeah, I mean, I think we still have a long way to go. Well, flipping that on the other side, then with you, with your law enforcement eyes, what was your perception of, for example, the George Floyd incident wearing a badge yourself? Oh, it was awful. Um, that officer, um, was a hundred percent in the wrong. Um, you know, when you have control of a suspect, you know, that's, they're your responsibility now to take care of them. You put him in the recovery position, um, and get him up. If he's saying he can't breathe, put him in the recovery position, get off of him and get him up. I mean, that's kind of common sense. Um, I think that officer let his ego get to him. Like we talked earlier about egos and, you know, it cost him, everything and then what you said about the ferguson effect i mean walk me through what you saw in your area and then what you've kind of seen as far as that kind of hair trigger element in these other cities after what happened in your own i mean any after ferguson um any respect for law enforcement was gone um police we couldn't do our jobs anymore 
Um, I think the citizens knew they could do what they wanted and get away with it now. Um, and obviously a lot of riots in different cities popped up after uh, Ferguson, Missouri. And I think it's still like that to this day. I think people, you know, we've kind of come to a, a point in law enforcement where the suspects are now looked at as victims um, in politicians' eyes and the public's eyes. And I think people know that they can push the boundaries more and there's not going to be any consequences. Now, who is pushing the boundaries? Because, again, I'm, I'm a huge incurable optimist and I truly believe that the middle 80-ish percent of people just want to do the right thing. They just want to, you know, wake up, feed their kids, you know, spend quality time, put a roof over their head, and they're not planning some, you know, defund movement. They're not planning to to start throwing firebombs at whatever. They just want to get on with their day. So from my perspective, my own personal view is that you see a few people that have, you know, agendas that are trying to ignite the masses. So who who do you see is benefiting from this movement to kind of demonize law enforcement? I mean, obviously criminals are benefiting from it because they can get away with more now. I don't know. I think as a lot of it's, you know, certain politicians benefit from it depending on what their agenda is. I mean, I don't know. And it's sad to see because a majority of the country are good people. And you see bad things happening to good people and, you know, cops hands are kind of tied behind their back. I think a lot of cops are afraid to do their job now. I think they're less proactive now because they're afraid of consequences that they do get in a use of force situation, like what could happen. And, um, and it sucks because it's only innocent people that are, you know, their safety is at more at risk now because of the changes in the culture. I always talk about Brandon Coates. He was an Orange County sheriff's deputy that used to come into one of our firehouses and hang out with the crews. And uh, he got banged out on a call, went out, and then the fire crew got sent to a call a few minutes later. And Brandon was there, shot to death with his taser in his hand after pulling over at the traffic stop. So I saw that, and that was years ago. You know, we, we were seeing that. Now you see these videos, and it's horrendous. And I actually just saw one of Hialeah. That was my first fire department. Their police department, four of them trying to maintain, you know, control of one guy who ends up standing up. And I just, I, I, I see that. There's a lack of training, but like you said, there's also a fear of doing anything, which in my opinion is going to put not only law enforcement, but the person they're trying to restrain in more danger because a lot of times then they go from very, very poor hands-on to lethal force. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. It's so many factors of cops afraid of doing their, doing their jobs, cops not getting the training they need, um, you know, criminals knowing they can push the limit more with no consequences. There's just so many things happening at once. So and it's sad to see um, such a noble profession, you know, kind of decline over the years because of so many aspects. Now, just touching the community for a second, what were you seeing again in, in the area that you worked in as that was contributing to taking what I always refer to as, you know, innocent kindergartners and creating so many criminals? Because that's what a really, really unfair part of this conversation is we always focus on law enforcement's mistakes and we never talk about why are the streets of America so fucking dangerous Yet 
Oslo, Reykjavik. I mean, you can name all these cities around the world where the police are not in tactical gear, wearing vests all day, and, you know, gangs aren't murdering each other in the streets. So what were you seeing culturally that was creating so much crime in your city? Yeah, I think a lot of it's, you know, the the areas that are um, in poverty. And unfortunately, there's not enough programs being implemented to, to help those kids succeed, you know, when they're adults. And I think we've gotten better with it. And I, I do think St. Louis since Ferguson has um, increased their programs and things they're doing to help kids that, you know, are born, are born in not the best situations, but helping them get, give them a chance to, to blossom and succeed and not be sucked into a gang or drugs and stuff like that. Um, obviously drugs are a big issue in the country that increase crime, increase violent crime, increase gang activity. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, as, we as a community need to be better about implementing programs and officers need to be better about getting out of their cars and interacting with kids. I mean, I've always been a fan of it. It starts with kids um, when I was on patrol, I would always get out of my car if I saw a kid and give him a sticker or just give him a high five or just start talking to them because that one interaction could change the course of that child's life. Now, one thing that seems to be, a, again, a resounding truth is that when mentorship is put into a community, there's a great mentorship program here for firefighters where zero zero barrier to entry if you can show up at the fire station they will give you all the equipment all the trainings for free there's uh scholarships for fire academy that fire academy is then headhunted for our local fire departments um you have the police athletic league and you know the new york um police department uh, cops and kids boxing club in new york i mean all these great mentorship programs and they truly seem to be having a difference what have you seen again in, in your career as far as were there any police mentorship programs or or was it the martial arts side the um, men and women that are actually giving these young boys and girls an alternative to as you said that kind of criminal path or one they can learn you know self-esteem and, and respect and, and actually forge their own path yeah, I mean, there are a lot of, especially now since the Ferguson incident, there's a lot of police and uh, community mentorship programs. Um, since I moved to San Diego, I'm very active in one. There's a gym in San Diego that is a non, the whole gym is nonprofit. It's a boxing gym and it's like a tutoring center for kids. The boxing gym's only for kids and it's for at-risk youth. Um it was actually the gym was in the beat that I patrolled. I was the only officer at my department every day. I made sure to stop in in uniform, say hi to those kids. Um, I get off work and I would go to the gym and um, hang out with them. And so they could see me in uniform and out of uniform. I got to know them and I started volunteering there and I've uh, been volunteering there for years now. Um, I did a really cool event with my police department my old police department and my my that gym it was called box with a cop where I got 20 officers and 20 of the kids and um partnered them up and it was just a fun day of doing drills um the officers got to have lunch with the kids to get to know them and start to mentor them and at the end of the day the officers all surprised the kids with brand new boxing gloves and it's stuff like that that we need to be doing more of um 
Because at the end of the day, it was like a four or five hour event. But, you know, when you get to know these kids, like on a personal level, and like if you actively volunteer somewhere, you, that's when you really get to know them and can really start making positive changes. Um, so I actually just started a nonprofit in San Diego as well. Um, it just got approved by the IRS. So um, it's in the like early stages now, but my nonprofit is going to be specific um, events and programs for families in need, um, at risk youth. And it's going to involve, you know, first responders, firefighters, military, uh, police officers to be at these events to help mentor these families and give back to, um, these families that are in need. Beautiful. Well, just one more kind of community topic before we go to, to what you're doing now and you transition out. Something I like to ask law enforcement, because I think it's the hardest question for your community. Me personally, through my eyes as a firefighter and a paramedic coming from England, working East Coast and West Coast, um, a real truth to me was the this is your brain on drugs mentality that we were all raised in. Um, I started to question it and I saw this war, so-called war on drugs caused so many deaths. I mean, the number of, you know, teens that I pulled a sheet over, the number of addicts we found there, the, you know, the homelessness, the prostitution, et cetera. Um, and very long story short, because people that listen to this regularly have heard this story a hundred times, but my family moved to Portugal and I learned while I was over there that they had decriminalized addiction. Now they still lock up smugglers, they still lock up dope dealers, but the addicts get filtered into a mental health and addiction um path rather than prison and they had an incredible success and this isn't where you can go to you know the supermarket and buy drugs it's not that it's just you're not sent to prison if you have a, a personal amount um and i watched i actually sat down with the guy who spearheaded that in portugal and, and toured his facility and, and saw the statistics and they had an amazing success when i look at all the the death and destruction that i witnessed with my own eyes on the streets of the east and west coast in the u.s I saw how much was attributed to the illicit drug trade. I'm always curious as your perspective of that um, that element, the war on drugs, if, if you saw that it was working well or if you kind of had questions yourself as you progressed through your career. I don't, you know, that's a good question. It's hard to answer. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I kind of see even in California with the homeless population, it's like, what's the answer? You know, how do you you know, it's not illegal to be homeless, but when you offer homeless services, nine out of 10 times, I mean, more than that, probably 10 out of 10 times, they're like, no, they don't want to go to a shelter. They don't want help. So it's like, you know, what do you do? Um, the mental health system, I think is, needs a lot of improvement. You know, you, you take people to these mental health facilities to get help and hopefully feel better. And you find out that they got released like two hours later. And I'm like, what? Like, you know, really like this person just tried to kill themselves and they're out a couple hours later, like get, I can't imagine they got the help they needed that quick. I don't know. I think that's just a hard question to answer. I think we, I don't know. I think as a country, a lot of things are broken and a lot of things need to be improved. Yeah. And I'm just always curious for everyone's perspective. I mean, you know, I, I've got to see and hear and, and talk to so many people and, you know, I, I have, Again, an incurable optimistic element that if we affect mental health, we will affect a lot of the issues that we see, including homelessness. You know, how many people that are homeless truly have some sort of trauma at the heart of why they're living on the streets? Um, all right. Well, then I would love to hear what made you ultimately choose to transition out of law enforcement. 
So <clears throat> I can't really go in the details, but um, the agency I worked for in California, it was just a very toxic work environment. And after several years, um, I was like, you know what, for my own mental health, I need to step away. Um, and I love being a cop and I miss it. Um, I have never had any trauma or mental health issues with any type of radio call or incident. But what gives me trauma is what I went through inside the walls of my own department with admin, supervisors, coworkers. Um, it's pretty sad. And um, I'm not, I know I'm not the only officer that has experienced it at that agency. And um, I just got to a point where I was like, you know, for my own health, I'm, I'm done. So I stepped out of law enforcement pretty recently. And um, once I stepped out, you know, obviously I needed a job. I was like, crap, what do I do now? I'm in one of the most expensive cities in the country. And right now I have no income coming in. I mean, I still work at um, part-time as a DTAC instructor at the police academy, but obviously I can't live off that money. So I was like, one day, you know, I talked to my parents and I was like, you know what? I've had a passion for years now to start my own law enforcement military combatives program. Right now I'm unemployed. This is my time to um, go towards my goal and dream and starting this business. And um, it's, um, it's blossomed, man. I, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. I mean, I feel amazing. I feel like a whole new person being away from that toxic work environment and now pursuing my dream. Um, I started my combatives company in San Diego. It's called OTX tactics. It's called, it stands for off the X tactics. Um, it's based out of my MMA gym in San Diego, 10th planet. And man, it's only been, I think I started the program four or five weeks ago and it's already skyrocketed. Like my classes, I'll get, 10 plus officers each class and it's local officers, it's feds. I get military police, military. I've even gotten a couple of firefighters to jump in some classes. Like it's really blossomed and I can't wait for the future to see where I take this program. That's so good to hear. When I transitioned out of the fire service, the last department I worked for um, was so complacent and the toxic environment was really the inertia. It was the complete you know, lack of willingness to hold any any bar, you know, physical physical fitness, training, any of that. And we even had a near miss. We had the pulse shooter come to our my first Jew, my area first, saw I think there was a shift change to too many cops, got back in his car, went up to pulse and shot that place up instead. And that didn't even cause a hiccup, not even a mention. I was overseas when I came back. And so it was that kind of complacency and that constant being told to shut up, sit down, you know, we're not changing, blah, 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 was absolutely, you know, destroying my mental health as well. And I can totally relate to what you said. When I transitioned out, when I took that jump and says, fuck it, I don't care about this pension. I took my pension, I cashed it out and gave myself a salary for a year and a half. I'm going to focus on this podcast and make a difference from the outside of these agencies. The weight off my shoulders was incredible. And I realized that you and I feel like we have autonomy when we're in uniform. Well, I'm out there, I'm, you know, doing what I want. I'm in my patrol car, I'm in, you know, my rescue or my fire engine. But then you take a step back and you go, actually, no, 
I'm I'm beneath so many of this you know, kind of layers of hierarchy. They tell me how to how to you know what to wear, how to shave, where to go, you know when to sleep. I mean all these things. And all of a sudden you come out and you sleep in your own bed and you're like, well shit, you know this. I can still have the same purpose that I did in uniform, but it just looks different now. And then you're you know making a difference now in the community that you loved, but from the outside. And I'm doing the same thing with this. Yeah. I mean, I can't even describe like it, it's amazing how much a work in a, a work environment can affect you mentally. You would think getting shot at would affect you, which I mean, me personally, like after my the, my officer involved shooting, like I don't feel any trauma from it. I feel fine. I can talk about it freely to like my friends. I have like I'm good. But if I talk about incidents, I endured at my police department with supervisors, with coworkers, when, it, you know, with bullying and stuff like that. Like I, like, I feel a certain way, like almost like trauma starts to come back to me and I get anxiety and it's like, wow. Like, and it sucks that we, especially now more than ever, we need good cops out there and we're losing cops left and right. Not because of, I mean, the job, you know, has its pros and cons, but we're losing cops because how we treat each other, we eat our own. And I don't understand why that culture exists in law enforcement, but it's really, really sad to see. And I hope it changes someday. I've had quite a few law enforcement officers recently be very, very blunt. And they're like, you know, you know, you need to throw your thin blue line stickers in the trash because just like you said, you, there isn't that brother and sisterhood. And I've seen that in in the, the you know the fire department space too now i've worked for some great um, agencies anaheim always hold very very high and there was a lot of camaraderie there and even hialeah my first one they had had a, a engineer almost killed been hit by a car and when i got hired there they had just re-roofed his house so when he got out of hospital his, his house was completely refurbished and that is that's what we're talking about but conversely the number of you know, the, the, the kind of go-getters from departments when I have these conversations all over the, the world, they're trying to do the right thing. They're holding their fitness and training standards high. And I don't think people understand that our professions take vacation and use our own money just to get better at skills that we can only use at work, you know, which is insane. No plumber would do that, you know, <laughs> working for a, a plumbing company. Um, but, you know, they, uh, the, the compounding element, as you said, of a lot of the mental health is the environment they're working at. There's nothing worse than wanting to be professional and wanting to be as good at your job as you can and swimming upstream because your agency is actually pushing the opposite way. Yeah. I always said that I felt more safe being on a radio call with a bunch of gangsters that I knew were strapped than I did inside the walls of my own police department. And that's sad. But you should never feel that way. And it's sad that we've created and, and that and I know it's not every department. I think every department has it to a degree. And I think there's just some departments out there that are way worse than others as far as the culture. But um, we just have to do better as law enforcement of how we treat our brothers and sisters. And it, it just, that's another huge aspect that needs to be improved on. And if the public only knew what happens within inside the walls of agencies, I think they'd be shocked. So if you could be queen for a day and completely control, alt, delete, reinvent, you know, the elements that you see in law enforcement, which again, these conversations is parallel to EMS and fire and corrections, but law enforcement specifically, 
what changes would you make that would therefore elevate physical health, mental health, and that camaraderie that's missing? And I don't, um, I mean, obviously more training needs to happen with firearms and combatives, like a lot more, but that needs to be like a monthly thing, not, you know, once a year, um, training as far as changing the culture within agencies. I don't know. I mean, that's how, what do you do? You know, I, I know at my last agency, I actually went to the chief and asked like, can we start maybe like, a doing like bringing in a professional and maybe doing like, you know, anti-bullying classes. Like it got to that point where I had to ask for that type of training to come to our facility. Um, you know, and I knew at the end of the day, officers aren't going to take it seriously and they're going to continue to treat each other the way they do. So I, I don't know what the solution is as far as, I don't know. I just think as a first responder, it brings a certain type of personality and it's a lot of ego and, and just, I don't know. I mean, it, it sounds corny because, you know, we're all adults, but maybe we need to start implementing programs within agencies of anti-bullying. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it sounds, it's like, you know, it's like we're not in kindergarten. We shouldn't need that, but you know what? I think that does need to happen in, in some aspects. So maybe more fun events, like maybe like, get the department together for like a softball game or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. Well, having worked for four agencies, the, the best, you know, and I'll, I'll hold Anaheim up there overall as an entire department, they had the hardest, most stringent probation. So I tested against a thousand candidates that were either firefighter EMTs or firefighter paramedics. So all certified, a lot of them had volunteer experience, ambulance operating experience. Um, and I think that was all between the two classes for like 30 jobs. Um, conversely, the last place I worked at, you know, there was zero accountability. So, so Anaheim, by the end of the probationary year, they usually fired 25% of the new hire class. That's how you know, diligent they were at that time of holding the line, holding that standard. The other place, there was no standard. You didn't even do any training. You just basically rode theme park rides and did HR paperwork, and that was it. You're welcome. What I saw was polar opposites, where the bar was held high. Firstly, a 1,000 people tried to test. So this whole lowering the bar, you'll get more people mentality, I think is bullshit. I really do. I think you hold the bar high and you challenge people, you'll get more candidates. But going through a crucible of a probation like that and having that bar set high I witnessed it create camaraderie, you know, that, that, um, you know, community through suffering, as they say. So to me, if you were talk, as you're reporting, our pool is getting smaller and smaller and that bar is getting lower and lower. What worries me is that brotherhood and sisterhood is going to continue to decay. And where I have like Christian, Z Christian Zeman and um, Roger Shai, some of these chiefs that were very well revered and had combatives and realistic, um, weapons training. From what I saw from the videos of like Kristen's retirement, for example, the camaraderie was very strong there. I mean, the turnout when she left was was amazing. It was like a blooming funeral, the number of bodies that were lining the streets. Um, so I think that's one of the things is the more we think that lowering the standards is better, the more we're destroying our profession. Yeah. Yeah. And then like I don't want people to think like I I know like I've been I was a cop for 12 years. There's a difference between normal friendly banter back and forth and straight up bullying harassment sexual harassment 
pretty awful things that actually create officer safety issues on radio calls. So there's a difference between that friendly banter back and forth and then straight up like you're being a fucking asshole to your coworker. Um, I'll give you an example, something that didn't happen to me, but this is just a prime example of the environment that needs to change. There was an officer a while ago that got punched in the head by a suspect. Um, He got, I think he hit the ground after that and he got a concussion from that punch. And I think he had to sit out for a couple of weeks. What I saw, how the officers were treating him in the department made me want to throw up. He got bullied relentlessly, not only behind his back, but to his face. Officers were coming up to him, making fun of him like crazy. And he had a concussion, just making like embarrassing him, calling him all these names because he got hit. He got punched in the face while trying to arrest a suspect and he hit the ground. No one once checked on him. Hey, are you okay? What can I do for you? How are you feeling? I was disgusted at that behavior that I saw. I think I was the only officer that actually checked on him. I texted him several times in person. I went up to him. Hey dude, how are you feeling today? Let me know if you need anything. I'm so sorry that happened. Like, and I'm a combatives instructor. Like I, I didn't give, you know, you would think these officers, I don't know. Were there things um, tactically that could have been better? Absolutely. But even with my MMA and like defensive tactic experience, I didn't get, I was like, Hey dude, I just checked on him. That's all he needed is just someone to check on him. He doesn't need someone to give him shit. Someone to make fun of him. Someone to call him names, like very awful names, like be there for your brother. He's already embarrassed. It was already on film and everyone's spreading the film. He knows everyone's watching it, making fun of him. Like, don't humiliate him more than what he already is. Well, don't you extend that to the mental health stuff? You know, concussion, you still is a pseudo visible injury. Like, as you said, there was video footage of him getting his, you know, his bell rung. And we all know in the combat sports that that means you don't go right back in the ring again. I mean, we're learning now from the TBI stuff, as we spoke earlier, that you can only get so many hits before it really starts taking a toll. But now you, you factor in the depression side. And that's the irony with the prohibition laws is it's okay to go drink yourself to, to death. That's socially acceptable. But, you know, we have so many people. I've lost three firefighters in this area alone to opiate overdoses, you know. So the inability to talk about that is harrowing. But then you think about this bullshit facade of, you know, manliness and you can't talk about your fucking desperately depressed or anxious or you know whatever and then everyone has the audacity to to be like oh why why can't we you know fix this mental health problem and as i always say we give great great funerals to suicides but we won't put any fucking effort into preventing them in the first place and we need to have these conversations and the workplace you know, if, if you're not walking the walk with this brotherhood and sisterhood with this camaraderie with having the courage to allow people to be vulnerable and be caring and compassionate when someone's hurt their back concussed you know depressed going through addiction then you need to take the fucking badge off your chest and walk away from that profession because you are not the kind of person that we need in uniform yeah 100 it's i don't know all i can say is i feel fucking great (laughs) being away from that just toxicity and you know i love cops obviously i mean i started a combatives program for cops. I also teach free defensive tactics every Friday. I offer a free class 
um, donate my time. Anyone that wants to come, I mean, I actually do get pretty uh, decent turnouts for my free classes. So as much as I hate the profession and what it's become, I love officers so much. I'll do anything for them, but you know, I, I, I don't know what the solution is because I, I don't know. I love cops, but then I hate them. So <laughs> it's both. <laughs> well, I think that's the problem is, you know, the, the, the profession itself, the desire to serve, to be there when someone's having their birth, first, excuse me, their worst day is what burns in all of us. But as you pointed to, if the, the, you know, the environment itself is separate from that desire to serve. And, you know, as, as I've pointed out in America, how many volunteer fire departments are there where they should be paid? You know, it's insane. Like the Northeast has heavily populated suburban towns with a volunteer fire service. It's absolute insanity. So that's the problem, I think, is that a lot of us would do it regardless. And a lot of agencies take advantage of that too. So I think you can, you can want the profession to be better. And that doesn't take away from your love of the profession. Yeah, absolutely. So I just, I hope, I mean, I, I still actively teach at the police academy and I really hope, you know, the things that I say to these recruits stay with them and they don't get, don't let their egos get to them and they, they kind of knew each other and they have each other's back and just, you know, they don't get sucked into that toxic environment that I think is there at every agency. Just some agencies have it a lot worse than others. Well, what about your MMA journey? Are you going to go back into competition or are you pausing uh, indefinitely? Um, I'm open to it. I just told my coach a couple days ago I'm willing to fight again. Um, I mean, obviously right now I want to focus on my new business that I started, the OTX Tactics, but I'm definitely open to fighting again. Um, you know, I'm going to be 35 in a couple of days and, you know, I still, I think I still have a couple of fights left in me. Brilliant. All right. Well, I want to get to, um, you know, where people can find OTX and what that looks like. Just before I do, though, if I could throw a couple of closing questions at you. All right. The first one is, are there is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Uh, you know, I don't read a lot of books. I actually listen to a ton of podcasts. I try to listen to as many podcasts as I can to learn or be a better person. So, um, I actually do listen to a lot of police podcasts, even though I'm no longer in the profession. I mean, obviously, I I have a program for cops, so I'm still just trying to soak up knowledge and, um, yeah, just be a better person and be a better person for officers. So, you know, they're learning the best tactics they can to stay safe. What is some of your favorite podcasts? Um, man, I'd have to go through my list. I have it in my phone. I, I listen to a lot of self-help podcasts about like relationships with significant others or family members just things to that help me reflect on what I can do to be a better person so I, I honestly I listen to so many different podcasts I don't even think I have like a favorite like I'm just all over the place with podcasts brilliant all right well what about a movie and or documentary I I watch a lot of obviously with my uh, background in law enforcement I watch a lot of like murder documentaries and like you know <laughs> solving crimes and stuff like that um as far as movies man I'm honestly such a busy person I don't watch a lot of like I'm barely watching tv if I do it's usually like crime scene like documentaries 
Sorry, I'm not the best at uh, I'm not the best person to, to ask these questions. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, that's the thing. Your answer is your answer. Um, next question then. Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've spoken to Raul Martinez. Raul, he has a, um, a program called uh, Rogue Methods. It's open to everyone. It's not just cops. Like you'll see military in his classes, CCW uh, holders. Um, I've taken a ton of his classes, even, you know, when I was active law enforcement, I would just pay for it out of my own pocket and go. Um, he is a military vet. He was a, a Chicago PD officer. He was an officer in Arizona for a while before he broke away and kind of same thing as me. He started his passion and which is his company now rug methods. He's got a wealth of knowledge. I think his training that he puts on is training that's very much needed for law enforcement that law enforcement is not getting. Um, I think he's a really cool dude. He's really funny and he's fun to listen to. Beautiful. Is that someone you'd help me connect with? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. I'm just looking now. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find OTX Tactics and where you are online, what do you do to decompress? I... For me to decompress, I love being around my friends. I'm a very, like, I'm a people person. I, I don't like to, like, especially, like, if I'm stressed out, like, I don't want to be alone because I'm just going to think about it. So I'm always, like, every weekend I hit up my friends. Hey, what do you guys want to do this weekend? Let's go to this restaurant. Let's go to this bar. Let's do this, do that. So I'm just a very, like, even though I'm quiet and I'm kind of an introvert, I just love being around my friends and people that I'm comfortable with. So that's kind of how I decompress is being around people that I love and I know they love me. And um, that's where I feel the most comfortable. Brilliant. All right. Well, then for people looking online, O2X Tactics, excuse me, OTX Tactics, where can they find that? Yeah. So I have an Instagram for my program. It's exactly OTX Tactics. Um, I have a Facebook page for it, OTX Tactics. Um, my Instagram is at Smashly MMA. I'm always posting about my new program on my personal page as well. So um, you'll be able to find all the info on there. Brilliant. And then you'll be announcing the nonprofit when it's ready on there too. Yeah. So the nonprofit's called um, Equality. Um, I have not made any social media for it yet because it's still in the very beginning stages. Like I still like I have an appointment next week with a bank to open up a bank account for it um, so I can start getting donations. So um, I'll hopefully we start, I'll make an, um, social media accounts for the nonprofit probably the next month or two and I'll be posting about it on my personal Instagram once I do beautiful well Ashley I just want to say thank you so much it's been an amazing conversation um, you know the, the, the insight that you've got from the different lenses have been invaluable so thank you so much for coming on the show today alright thank you for having me